that works. All right, good. Okay, so yeah, so today we're happy to have um, uh, Dr. Villanueva, uh, Mercedes Villanueva, joining us from uh, Yale New Haven, who's going to speak on an update on HIV hep C approach to HCV microelimination. Uh, so Dr. Villanueva has been here once before, twice? Once? Once before, yeah, so welcome back. Uh, uh, she started her training at Harvard and then got her MD at Washington University and has been uh, at Yale really pretty much uh, for most of her subsequent professional career. She's currently associate professor at Yale and also the program director for the HIV AIDS uh, uh, program uh, and has done extensive work around uh, 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 hep C and HIV. Uh, uh, Dr. Villanueva has no conflicts of interest that I need to mention. Uh, the activity code for the session for uh, CME for folks is 42, I would write it up if there was somewhere to write it up, 42U as in umbrella Z as in zebra. Um, and for nurses to get credits, I have to remind you, you need to stay for 80% of the session. I don't think so. I think we're, I think we're good. Yeah. So you're not coming over the microphone. Yeah. Brian, We have a wearable one, or do you want to? Okay. So the code is 42U as an umbrella, Z as in zebra. Thank you. Okay. Can, can you hear me? Great. Okay. Yes, thank you. So thank you very much for inviting me to come up here and speak. Uh, I used to work with Richard a lot from the AETC, and uh, welcome now by Lisa. So I was told in preparing for this talk that this is a really expert crowd. So please, uh, we'll go through some basic things, but mostly I want to get a sense of where you all are in the treatment of hepatitis C really within the HIV setting. So I call this microelimination because hep C is such a huge field and everyone is very heady in talking about 100% cure, but we all know that cure happens a little bit at a time. And so our world of HIV and hepatitis C is a microclimate, and I think we have our challenges in this world. So in the next 45 minutes or so, I'd like to talk about some of these challenges and go through three cases of my own, which I think are 
illustrative of some of the challenges that we face. So um, I, my disclosures are that we have multiple sources of slides. I think many of you are familiar with clinical care options, the AETC national curriculum, which actually commissioned a curriculum for HIV hepatitis C, and I encourage you to, to uh, check that out. And of course, the, um, the HCV guidance from the AASLD and the IDSA. So it's, it's very interesting and, uh, to put together many sites because there's so much material out there to actually trim it down to something that makes sense is a, is a challenge. So our objectives today are starting out with reviewing the epidemiology of HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. Then we're going to apply the treatment guidelines with specific cases. I have three cases. One is treatment naive, then a treatment experience, and then for persons who inject drugs. And finally, really discussing real-world implementation challenges. Uh, and then I'd love to hear your experiences within in this context. Okay, so a little bit on epidemiology. So as many of you know that uh, there's estimated 70 million people living with hepatitis C worldwide. And this is just a sort of snapshot of prevalence of viremic individuals, and in the red are the high prevalence areas. So um, uh, Russia, uh, for example, Egypt, Pakistan, uh, and, and the United States, which is here, in, in yellow, is sort of in the middle tier of countries. But depending on the, the size of the population, we'll tell you what the burden of disease really is in these countries. And so I was surprised to find, actually, that 30 countries account for 80% of chronic hepatitis C infections. And in fact, 50% of the total are estimated to be in these countries, of which the US is actually there. And even though China was not necessarily in the red zone for, for much of this, but the population is so large so that, in fact, the burden of chronic hep C in China is quite sizable. And then you have a sprinkling of, of cases uh, throughout the world. There's not a whole lot in, in Europe, for example, but when you go to, to poster presentations at Croix, for example, they're doing a lot of the work in terms of cascade of care. So coming back to home base, so in the U.S., it's estimated 3.5 million individuals. And this seems to be a moving target, and uh, for, for part of the reason is we're getting new incident cases, and part of the reason is that surveillance is not perfect. But that is a going uh, statistic. And then in terms of incident cases, it was thought to be about 41,200 in 2016. So this number is not dissimilar to HIV, where we still think that we have roughly 35 to 40,000 incident cases per year. So this is the lay of the land. Okay, but as I just heard from Dr. Marsh earlier, that this particular part of the world is really heavily hit by the opioid epidemic. So if you look at the epidemiology of hep C in the U.S., and just a little over 10 years ago, and if you look at newly reported cases, males in, in um, blue, females in orange, and then you look at the year, how old they are at the time, this is the curve that we're familiar with. It's a baby boomer type of disease. How many people in this room are in the baby boomer group? Come on. <laughs> okay, and then there's some youngies who are don't, uh, not in this group, okay? And so, but then um, 2015, 
Look at the way the curve has changed. I think this is not unfamiliar to most of you. And who's accounting for this new bump is uh, persons who inject drugs. The 20 to 40 year olds uh, who are not in the baby boomer. So just when we thought that we were getting a control of this epidemic, there's new influx of incident cases. And so screening, linkage to care, the DAA treatment cascade, they have to be operative in reaching all these persons at risk. And then this issue, this new bump, treatment of this group, PWID, and harm reduction efforts are really essential part of, uh, of our elimination efforts. So these are challenges that we need to really face in terms of implementation. So this article came out in February 2018 in the Annals and documented much of what we are already seeing on the ground, that is increases in acute hepatitis C are related to the growing opioid epidemic. So not only is the epidemic growing, but it is carrying along with it hepatitis C. All right, so, so we're dealing with, with opioid-related deaths, but we're also dealing with an influx of hepatitis C. And so how does this actually look? So these are CDC statistics. Um, opioid injection use rose dramatically among white Americans, which is impacting the overall mortality in this country on the, in the wrong way uh, for the first time. Hep C was increased by 300%. So this is the Hep C rate among white Americans. And then admissions for opioid injection increased by 134%. So these curves are paralleling one another. And then when you look at that broken down by age, so among people aged 18 to 29, hep C increased by 400%, and admissions from opioid injection, 622%. These are admissions. These are not the overdose deaths that we unfortunately are seeing in our communities. And then among a slightly older population, hep C increased also by 325%, and admissions for opioid injection also went up, but not as dramatically as in this younger age group. And so just as a simplification, why, why are we seeing this? Well, we all know that increased use of prescription opioids have uh, led to increasing opioid injection and this nature of transmission. Okay, so when we talk about the intersection of HIV and hepatitis C, so this is the statistic that is frequently cited. In other words, that if in the U.S. there's 3.2 million cases of hepatitis C and prevalence of 1.2 million of HIV, the intersection between the two is thought to be 25%. Okay. This is hugely variable, depending on what part of the country that you live in, urban versus rural, et cetera. So, but this is the population that we think is the target for our micro-elimination efforts. So, but I don't really know, we don't really know how accurate that number is. And I'm involved in a grant right now from um, HRSA where we're trying to look at elimination of hepatitis C in HIV populations. And part of the problem is surveillance. And so surveillance is a tricky issue. And this paper came out in uh, epidemiology infection in 2015, and it's from New York City where they were able to look at prevalence of HIV and viral hepatitis, which is B and C. They were able to look at that from a surveillance standpoint. So we're talking large databases, which is a tricky issue because, as many of you know, HIV, the database for HIV, surveillance database, is quite mature. Why? Because we've had 25, 30 years to make it mature. 
right? And so CDC has always based their uh, statistics on Department of Public Health surveillance data and the databases called EHARS, okay? So it's a really robust database. Unfortunately, the hepatitis C database is not quite so robust. And so in many states, it's under-reporting, under-recording, and then now, you know, people were doing antibody-based testing and, and surveillance, and now it's really viremic, right? So for all these reasons, the database for hepatitis C is, is at a very infant stage compared to HIV. So nonetheless, New York City has actually been leading the pack in terms of trying to make these work. And so this is a sort of good methodology paper. And just, it's not perfect in terms of the surveillance, but what did they find? So if they look at just based on um, the transmission risk, so if you look at HIV monoinfected versus HIV hepatitis B, HIV hep C, our target population, and triply infected people, what is the major HIV transmission risk? It's overwhelmingly injection drug use. Not a surprise, okay? So, so very often this, is, uh, this colors how we approach microelimination because this is such a um, challenging issue uh, this population has many challenges in terms of treatment. And then when you look at incarceration history, then if you look again at ever incarcerated, so the folks who have HIV hepatitis C, they have roughly 30% ever incarcerated risk. Now, is that where they got their HIV, their hepatitis C, or, you know, there is transmission within incarcerated incarceration, but it also selects out for a group that has injection drug use. So, so again, setting the stage for what it is that we're dealing with when we talk about microelimination. Okay, so that's my epidemiology quick overview. Any setting the stage for the patients that come to us? Okay, so treatment, yeah, yes please. In that one slide, you have heterosexual transmission. That's male to female, female to male. Yes. Is that pretty well documented that the Epsi uh, virus is in the, in the semen and is transferred that way? So, so definitely the other big epidemic, which I don't talk about here, is MSM. So it is definitely documented in semen. So, but in the U.S., it is not as big of an MSM epidemic as in Europe. When you go to some of the posters from Spain, from Germany, they are having huge outbreaks within the MSM population. So it's definitely sexually transmitted in that population. Heterosexual transmission is less of an issue, um, but in this country, we are heavily injection drug use. I, I also, yes, please. Could you share your, your thoughts on why, why do you think it's beneficial to focus on co Pepsi, HIV co-infected patients as a micro environment? Yeah. Well, partly it's uh, it's a way of wrapping your 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 efforts around a, a particular goal. So it's it's it it is a a smaller population, but also because in I, I don't present this data, but it's really quite well known that people who are co-infected there have a higher rate of progression uh, to end-stage liver disease. So it is actually a group where the morbidity and mortality is increased. So it's a good group to, to focus on. And also because we have um, 
you know, a, a good system within the HIV world. Ryan White, we do have a better system than other sort of diverse systems uh, that are less easy to sort of um, uh, bring together. So I think, but from the, from the clinical standpoint, it clearly has more devastating impact to be co-infected. And are you aware of data showing that co-infected folks are more likely to transmit Hep C to others? They're, don't have that, no. Don't have data that way, yeah. So that graph that showed the distribution of Hep C cases worldwide, I was surprised that uh, uh, Africa is really low. Egypt is high, but that could also be surveillance bias, okay, that, you know, if we have surveillance issues in the U.S., worldwide, there's definitely surveillance issues. Okay, so let's talk about uh, um, guidelines. So I think all of you are aware of the tremendous uh, progression of um, hepatitis C therapy, and I will not belabor this point, but I've lived through the... How many people did interferon treatment back in the day? So it's really more like a dying breed. I mean, the, the <laughs> interferon, <laughs> interferon was like as much of a torture for the providers as it was for the patients who had to live through this. But nonetheless, we did treat them, and we like, you know, got through many of these cases, but with very, very few successes. So this is like a revolution in our time. And so actually, our first um, DAA was in 2011, Telaprevir, Boseprevir, protease inhibitors, and they're like, they're gone. They, they were like in, in, the, in the whisk of a, an instant, they were gone. And then the various um, genotype 1, so just a few trends to note that early on, really genotype 1-centric kinds of treatment. These are our oral direct acting agents. Uh, and then as we come further on after 2015, we really start having all the genotypes. So the trend really is, focus on genotype 1, and that is a large part it's American, because what's our biggest genotype in the U.S., and where are the drug companies making this? U.S., and we are a genotype 1 country. So, so this really uh, grew a lot out of this, but, but pretty much interferon-free in the, in the early 2000s, we are in an interferon-free generation. Although I did talk to someone from China recently who is directs their CDC, they're still using interferon because they have a phenomenally low price for interferon. So if you can get people through interferon, there, is still some, there are still some countries that do it, but having lived through that era, there's like no way I'm going to put anyone on interferon. Okay. All right. So just as a primer, the DAA drug classes and this is talking about retreatment, but just as a, uh, a refresher. So we have three major classes of inhibitors. There's the NS348, the protease inhibitors. So the way to remember it is Previr, protease inhibitor. I think this is familiar to all of you, but just in case, uh, because then we're going to start spinning these out. So then uh, these are examples, Glacaprevir, Grazoprevir, Paritaprevir, Semeprevir, Voxilaprevir, okay? Then we have the NS5B polymerases, and you know they're NS5B because they end in buvir, NS5B. And so there's not a lot in this category. There's one nuke, sofasbuvir, which uh, really has not gotten a whole lot of competition. And then we have a non-nuke, which is the supavir. And so, again, these are the buvirs. And then NS5As, quite a few in this category, and they end in asvir, the klatasvir, elbasvir. So this is our vocabulary. This is our toolbox. 
And just to note that resistance is shared within classes, not at all dissimilar to HIV. And finally, we do get resistance mutants, but when you do get mutations, we often still have the other drugs available. So it's not so far quite as dire as in HIV, but we do uh, have resistance mutations that are, we are starting to see. Okay, so let's. So what's on the market? So the next few slides are going to detail what is in our toolbox. So as in HIV, it's combination therapy is the name of the game, and it's just what are combined. So these are NS5As and NS5Bs. So what's available? Well, Harvoni, Ladipasvir, Sofosfavir. That's this. The first really uh, big combination, fixed-dose combination. Then we had the Clinza, the Cladosvir, and Sofosfavir. Two different companies, two pills. Okay, so not quite as easy as the first combination. And then we have sofosfavir velpatosvir, which is pan-genotypic. The first two drugs were really genotype 1-centric. So this is Epclusa, uh, and again, it's pan-genotypic. Okay, so what's available in the NS34A proteases and the NS5A? Okay, so there's Elbisvir, Grezoprevir, and this was marketed as a Zepatir, came out in January 2016. And again, it was really genotype 1A and 4-centric. Uh, and then this is really where ribavirin really started to, be, to move out of the field. Uh, the beauty of this particular drug is once daily dosing, and it was good in dialysis and renal impairment. So the new drugs that were coming on the market were really addressing holes in, in, in uh, treatment regimens. But the, the difficulty with this one is that you had to do resistance testing at baseline. And so some of the name of the game is that the new drugs, first of all, there's not too many new drugs coming out. It's the pipeline is definitely slowing down because who can compete with 95% SVR? What are you going to offer that the other drugs don't offer? Okay. So this particular one offered renal. This is a whole, the renal failure population. But the price was you had to do resistance testing, and that was not easy. This is what it looks like. You know, it's still, um, you know, they had to package it to make it uh, easy to take. Okay. Then this is the newest uh, combo on the market, glicaprovir pibrentasvir. How many people have prescribed this already? Great. Okay. So this is Mavaret, uh, and basically we're looking at pangenotypic, and it is once daily. I think the one potential Achilles heel is it's three tablets with fluid once a day, okay? So, but the beauty of it is it can be a shorter course, and we'll get into that. So you win some, you lose some, but this is, this is definitely a major advance in the market. And this is, uh, again, so what's beautiful about it or what's the big uh, advantage? No cirrhosis, treatment naive, every genotype, eight weeks. Okay, so it's really easy to remember, and patients love eight weeks. Even if you have compensated cirrhosis, it's 12 weeks. Okay, then you do have, of course, treatment experience patient, and the, the thing to remember is that, with, you know, in the absence of cirrhosis, depending on the degree of, of experience, you can, um, you may have to expand up to 16 weeks, but 16 weeks is really the max. Okay, and then another beauty about it is that it works in renal impairment, 
And, but in hepatic impairment, so child's pube class B or C, not a go. So the thing to remember with Mavaret is that it's, it's, it's a pretty easy drug to give, but once you're getting to advanced liver disease, that's, that's not the place for it. Okay, so, and our last category is our triple class. Um, and there's two drugs in that category. There is the Vicirapac or the Prod product. I won't go through all of these names, but it is the only combo that has the Subovir. Has anyone prescribed this ever, the Vicirapac? Okay, no, it's, it's, you have. What was your experience with it? It, it was long enough ago that I don't know. <laughs> that's the, but that's actually a real experience in the H, in the Hep C field. It's like here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> it's it's really been a roller coaster. But this drug really tried to compete in price, and there were just so many caveats. Take with food. Take you know, and then it has. Um, ritonavir in it, so in the HIV population, it's like, oh, if they're on ritonavir, I gotta tell them to stop, and then when they finish this, put it back. Believe me, when we counsel our patients, having them do that complicated stuff was not a cakewalk. So, so from the HIV standpoint, this was not, did not get a lot of uptake. And so this is the triple combination, sofosavir, velpatosavir, and voxilaprovir, triple, and they're potent pangenotypic, and really the place for this is uh, it's salvage therapy, when you've burned through everything. But even there, there are caveats. So has anyone prescribed this Vosefi? Okay. So, you know, Vosefi's market is really salvage treatment, but you can't have really advanced liver disease to, if, to use this drug. Okay. So that is basically our pharmacopoeia. And don't know that there's too much entering the market now because what we have is really quite good. Okay, so just one thing to point out. It's like, why did we even need so many more new drugs? They're all 95% SVR, right? Well, I think if the, this was illustrative. If you look at EC50s, effective concentration 50, if you look at Velpatosvir and Pibrentosvir, look at, the, it's like the MIC, basically. Two versus Lodiposvir, 34. So you really see that what they, add, they brought to the market was a more effective, potent, type of, of, of uh, uh, EC50. And what else did I want? But if you want to look at, for example, the diposphere genotype 3, which we knew genotype 3 was an Achilles heel, look at that EC50, 35,000, really high. What you want is something low, pibrentosphere at 2. That's why it's pangenotypic. Okay. And then similarly, you see this also with the protease inhibitors. Our earliest protease inhibitors, like simeprovir, the EC50s for genotype 3, really high. But these um, pan-genotypic regimens, much more favorable um, EC50. Okay, so case one. 62-year-old um, woman, past medical history of HIV, diagnosed in the 90s, interested in treatment. Um, T-cells, good. Viral load, less than 20. Adherent to ODEFC, TAF, FTC, Rolpivirine. Okay. Hepatitis C, genotype 4. Not that common in the U.S., but we do see it. This is her hep C viral load, treatment naive. Fib 4, 0.97, so really early disease, not cirrhotic. Um, and we don't have any evidence for cirrhosis. She has also on pantoprazole, a PPI, and oxycodone. Hep B immune, would you recommend treatment? If so, what? So I didn't have an audience response, but 
please pipe in. What would you do with this lady? Nice and naive, early stage. <laughs> HIV under control, comes to the clinic. What's that? No substance use. She's oxycodone, so this is a real case. Chronic back pain. Not harboni? Okay, so so she's thinking um, ahead. You know, drug drug interaction. So you're all on the right track. So first is a, choose a drug, uh, and then see if it interacts with any for medications, HIV meds, or you know, or uh, other medications. You know, uh, Odefsi, the, this is the one thing with HIV. This. So the thing with HIV is like, is there a drug interaction there? And this is where you got to look things up. So you don't like Harvoni because of the PPI. Okay. Any other considerations? Or you could take her to like hold off the PPI for a while. Yeah. Please correct me if, if I'm oversimplifying you. But I feel like these days, isn't the question, why not Mavarone? Okay. And if you can find a reason not to, then follow the He has though. drunk the Kool-Aid for Mavaret. <laughs> okay, so liking Mavaret. Uh, there's three pills, you know, twice, three pills once a day. Okay. Yeah, insurance, cost. So we're all thinking cost, you know, drug-drug interactions. Is Odefsi a bad player in here? Uh, and you're going for the Mavaret, like, right off the bat. Um, okay, so who who would choose Mavaret? <laughs> <laughs> who would choose Harvoni? Epclusa. Okay, so so it's spread around. So so there's no one right answer. So the, the bottom line is there's no one right answer. Okay, so. When we, when we, you know, we want to look, we go to hcvguidelines.org. How many of you guys have this on your phone? Yes. So this is like my next Bible. And so you're, they've redone the whole website. It's really quite user-friendly. Okay. So what does the Bible say? Well, genotype 4, treatment naive, no cirrhosis. Okay. So it's like this is what I call low-hanging fruit. All right. The easy people. So what do they have? Well, they have Mavaret, eight weeks. Ooh, eight weeks sounds really good. And then they do have Epclusa, Sofosvir, Velpatosvir, but it's 12 weeks, okay? And then you have Elbusvir, Grozoprovir, 12 weeks, but you got to get your resistance testing in line. Then we have Lodiposvir, Sofosvir, 12 weeks. So I feel like we quibble so much. Oh, my God, 12 weeks. But back in the day, when we remember, we did 48 weeks. It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and then they do have this alternative, the uh, Vecuropac. Okay, and that's a 12-week regimen. So really, the bottom line is you have a lot of choices. So how do you parse this? And I think the considerations were, um, first of all, co-infected studies. So the first, I think you all know this, but just to reiterate this, is that persons with HIV respond just as well. Okay, so you do not actually even have to distinguish them. Back in the day, we, you know, HIV infected uh, persons living with HIV always did worse. So it was like really had to be a prime candidate before you embarked on treatment. But these days, they really do just as well as mono-infected patients. And so the recommendations, bottom line, it's taken us several years. Bottom line is there's no difference in the recommendations, except you got to beware of drug-drug interactions. Oh, I should point out this. Um, 
This is in the guidelines that there is the eight-week course of sofosfavir lodiposvir, but um, for, for viral, load, viral load less than six million, but that is in HIV uninfected cases. Um, but before these guidelines come out, we had our own series. I'll just make a plug. We actually treat for eight weeks for, for people less than six million, and we've done very well. We've asked them to please, you know, we, we did publish our experience. People say, yeah, no, we're not changing the guidelines. But that is my, if, if eight weeks is the way to go in someone with less than six million, I still think they, do t they tend to do well. Okay, and what are the treatment uh, studies? There was ION4, LI2. I won't go through all of these. And these were all, you know, to compare co-infected with mono-infected, SVR rates, phenomenal, okay? So medication interactions, and basically you have to look, the, look them up every time, even experienced practitioners. Um, do not interrupt HIV antiretroviral therapy during hep C treatment. And, you know, you can consult the HIV med prescriber if you need to do an ART switch. Bottom line, when I first started doing this, I had people on non-nukes and I had people on boosted proteases for HIV. Anytime you have those, you've got to say, oh, there could be a drug-drug interaction. But bottom line is that uh, most of our people are in integrases, right? Insties. And insties, by and large, are safe. So we, what we used to do is change people over to insti regimen and then, um, and then start them on their DAA. But we are not doing that a whole lot these days. Okay. So what kind of interactions that are we uh, to be careful of? Again, you know, I circled here rilpivirine, and rilpivirine, the only Achilles heel is with that Vicuripac. So, so, you know, for our patient who was on rilpivirine, you really had lots of options, okay? But as was already pointed out, acid-reducing agents, which you do be careful of lodiposphere, soft-vel, soft-vel-vox, okay? But our friend, the Mavarette, <laughs> there's no drug-drug interactions with acid-reducing agents, so that makes that quite attractive, okay? Um, so, again, cost. I mean, this is really what exactly what you were saying, is that why wouldn't you use Mavarette when the price is phenomenally different from this is their hep C monthly wholesale acquisition costs, okay? So, it's a conversation you would have with the patient. I think that um, you know, one of the things with pan-genotypic regimens is like, I don't even have to check the genotype, correct? We still do because we're used to it, I think, but people make the argument that how much blood work do you need to actually check these days, right? Okay, so um, I think that there were various options on the table, and uh, you have to have that conversation with the patient. So let's go to the second case, okay? So this one, yes, please. In this patient, would you get imaging of the liver today, a fibroelastic measurement, or with a fit four this low? So what would people do? How many people routinely get imaging of the liver? And there's a, we work with the, the Texas group on our grant, and they like do fibro scan on everybody. So part of the answer it depends on your state and how they they allow drugs to be prescribed, the DAAs. Because like in Texas, they will not let you have a DAA without some sort of um, evaluation of the status of the liver disease. So they do fibro scan on everyone. In Connecticut, they don't care. <laughs> we spend money like water. <laughs> I don't know what it's like up here. You have restrictions. 
pretty minimal. So one can make the argument that you don't need to. However, I do have to say, okay, that once you're heading off into decompensated cirrhosis or child's class A, where sometimes it's not so easy and the length of treatment is longer, it behooves you to understand where you are. Because if you're just thinking, oh, this, is, this one has no liver disease, and you're very, especially when their Fib4 is borderline, sometimes I'll get the imaging. But I, I have to say, I rarely do biopsies these days. Okay. So, okay, so let's do a second case. So this one is... I'm still dealing with this guy, and I don't know what the answer is for him, so I'd love your advice. Six-year-old guy, he's being evaluated for retreatment. Okay, so he's uh, got co-infection, injection drug user, as we said. He's been long positive since 1991, beautiful CD4. He's on Triamec, viral load less than 20. Genotype 1A, he's got Fib4 2.29. Remember, 3.25 is the cutoff for F3, F4. But, and he had a liver biopsy in 2002, okay? F23 doesn't look like he has cirrhosis, and this is something I learned. So he didn't, you know, he's like borderline, but he was a null responder to interferon and ribavirin, so the ante is up. And then he, so we treated him with Harvoni for 12 weeks, okay? At four weeks, he was undetectable. At 12 weeks, hep C viral load 398, okay? Not looking so hot for this guy. So, what would you recommend treatment? And if so, what? So this is one that's not necessarily for the primary care doc. Great question. He, I had to kind of drag him kicking and screaming to this, into this, because he was like. I don't want to have anything to do with hepatitis C after his whole interferon debacle, okay? So he said yes. He said every day I took it. And is he uh, at risk for, is he currently injecting? Nope. You know, he's an older, he's an older guy now. He kind of likes to hang out at home and, you know, just doesn't like to particularly come to the clinic. So first of all, would you just say, uh, you know, you're not that advanced. You're okay. You know, just leave you be. I'm so, I felt bad because I talked him into coming to the clinic. I said, look, it's 95% SVR. Surely you're not in that 5% group <laughs> who doesn't respond. And it's like, okay, eat my hat. <laughs> okay, so it's a negotiation, right? So it would... We, we, he did say he was adherent. Okay, so that was a good point. Anything? So you're thinking resistance? Good point. Nope, we went through that. No, no acid-reducing agents. He was, you know, because we work with a specialty pharmacy, so they absolutely make sure we don't have any bad drug interactions. It's like, it's just bad luck. You got a resistance mutation. Could be. Okay. So... Is yeah. that the fact that he became undetectable at four weeks and then went up again, or is that just... It's a good point. Most people become undetectable at four weeks. They're sailing. Okay. Although we often, they do so well with these DAAs that we don't even often get the four-week ones anymore. If you're looking to save costs, it's like, why are you getting it at four weeks? We happen to do it at this point, mostly to prove to the guy that, hey, we're moving forward. Okay, so I'll tell you how this case evolved. Okay, so what does the Bible recommend? 
So the Bible recommends he's NS5A inhibitor experience genotype with or without compensated cirrhosis, okay? And so they actually say, let's go with Vosefi for 12 weeks. So this is a perfect place for Vosefi, all right? But of course, this is, this is the real world. And so just to point out that there are many common important resistance-associated mutations, like for genotype 1A, Y93HN, all in red, you know, once you get, it's, it's sort of like with the, our non-nukes, like if you get um, K103N, it's a one hit, you're gone, one hit, you knock out a lot of these. But Pabrentisvir is still not too bad, okay? So, so just to point out that we don't talk much about resistance in the world of hep C because our drugs are so good that we generally don't, but there are the 5%, not, it's not 100%. So, um, so I'm gonna skip through this, in the, but basically, Softvel Vox is now the go-to regimen for people who have NS5A, NS3 inhibitor experience patients. So according to the guidelines, he's a Vosefi patient. Okay. However, the guy could not be found because he was like, wrote me off by this point. He said, okay. So 19 months later, he decides to come back, and this is him, HCC. Okay, so once you get HCC, again, this may not be obvious to with ID people here, HCC is decompensated cirrhosis. Okay, so he's now moved on to another camp, and one of the things I learned is that just because of the Fib4 and the, you know, um, and he didn't look like his platelets looked okay, but he really had cirrhosis. He was more advanced than what I thought. Okay, so we can... It's not, it's not always so easy. So one could have, I, I, when he failed, I said, shoot, you know, maybe I should have just done another liver biopsy. Maybe he was more advanced than I thought, okay? Um, anyway, 19 months later, he's got HCC. He's being evaluated for transplant, and we still want to treat him, right? So now what? Thoughts? What's that? So you say <laughs> you transplant him first and then deal with it? Okay. He could, I mean, it's not a, you know, you can get a hep C liver pretty easily. Like the kidneys are now much more, you know, you can get hep C kidneys. Unfortunately, that's one of the things you've learned from the opioid epidemic is we have a, a lot of hep C positive kidneys. I know. We thought. It is sad. But... You know, when I have my talk to my transplant folks, they say, I can get you a hep C kidney so quickly because there's a lot of them. But anyway, um, so the point that I want to make with this case is now he's moved into another camp, all right? He's a decompensated cirrhosis. And so just in terms of, you know, who is the appropriate provider by stage of liver disease? I think people think the DAAs are so easy, you know, ID and hep C primary care providers, if your CTP score of five to six, not, not a problem. Once you're heading into CTP score six to eight, you probably need to get your hepatologist and then this guy score of nine plus, you really need specialty help. Um, okay, so bottom line is when you go to the guidelines, so this is, you know, CTP class B or C should be referred to a medical practitioner with expertise in that condition. Ideally, a liver transplant center, which we did, but they still tell us, so would you treat this guy? <laughs> and so these are the combinations um, that we are, 
And basically, this is a situation where ribavirin comes in again. So the, the, the learning point here is that when these people get very complex, DAA experience, advanced disease, decompensated, this is a situation where ribavirin, our old friend, might still have a role. How many people have prescribed ribavirin in this room? Another difficult medication to prescribe. So really, before you get into this, you know, you try to do everything possible, but in this case, ribavirin has so many side effects that they're ribavirin ineligible. You're really still talking, uh, this is for um, decompensated cirrhosis with the 24 weeks. So either you add ribavirin or you go longer. Okay, and then um, that was for people who weren't experienced, NS5A-based treatment failed. So he's an even more complicated, decompensated, NS5-based ex uh, experience. So really, the guidelines say you go sofosvir, volpatosvir with ribavirin. So this guy's in a bad situation, bottom line is. And he, he has actually, he keeps getting his ablation treatments, and he's on the transplant evaluation, and he's like, I don't want to see you. <laughs> but, but what I did find out, to make it even more complicated, is that he went to his primary care provider, my colleague, and he said, I stopped taking that medicine. <laughs> he, didn't, he wouldn't admit it to me, but after like two years, he said, yeah, well, I really stopped taking that medication. So in fact, he's really not treatment experience in a sense, he's just treatment non-adherent. So, so we're still facing uh, the situation, but just to show you the layers of complexity that we have in a patient like that. So um, third case, treatment experience, active substance use. Okay, I already told you this is an IDU epidemic, so we cannot get away from this situation. 56-year-old woman, um, co-infected, no AIDS-defining condition, CD4-1433. Viral load undetectable, also on Triamec. Okay, hepatitis C, genotype 1A, stage two, on liver biopsy 2011, looks non, no cirrhosis, okay? At least by our usual criteria. I treated her with, peg, she was like my last interferon person. I did interferon ribavirin, and she ended up in the ICU with ARDS. And then she lost like 50 pounds, okay? This was terrible. Okay, so it's not exactly easy to introduce, oh, let's try something else, right? After we nearly died with interferon ribavirin. So I saw her again, and in fact, her hep C viral load was 11 million, and we said, oh, let's try Harvoni. Okay, all gung-ho, yeah, I'll do Harvoni, 12 weeks, that shouldn't be too bad. Um, she did come for follow-up, she didn't do the refills in the pharmacy. So what do you do with this lady? We said, remember, we're saying microillumination. Everyone in our clinic who's co-infected, we are wiping out hep C. It's a very optimistic goal, okay? And the reason it's optimistic is for people like this. So what do you say? Do you give up or what? Do you say, come on, this is so easy, it's a piece of cake. Or would you just say, I don't know, let's wait a little bit. And I'll give you a little, so what about her substance use disorder? So this is where you... you get the history. So she does have a history of opioid use disorder, but she's been in remission for 20 years. She's never done methadone or bup. She is in remission. She did relapse for three months for a little bit, uh, 
but her primary gives her fentanyl for chronic pancreatitis pain. How many of you have patients like this? Chronic pancreatitis on opioids for decades, okay? Hospitalized with withdrawal symptoms because she ran out of her fentanyl a little bit early, okay? Utox was negative for opioids, um, but her Utox is positive for benzos, but she's not on benzos, okay? Kind of red flaggy, a red flag lady, okay? So, um, the bottom line is that in this lady, we have lots of options, as we talked about, from uh, if she were to take it. But the question is, do we prescribe her? You know, how many people would say, yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. How many people would hesitate? Okay, why? Uh, try again. Try That was part, yeah. Yeah, so all of this was going in the ED, so, yeah. Yeah, so I think hesitancy doesn't mean don't do it, but we want to sit with her and explore her, um, her readiness to retry therapy. So this is often the quant, yeah. I, I'd be really curious why she can suppress her HIV so well. Exactly. It seems like a lot of patient, right? So interesting. Okay, so sometimes there's disconnects there. Okay, so just many um, uh, practitioners, this is for ART, uh, prescribers in North America, an older study, are reluctant to initiate ART depending on, you know, if the person has injection drug use, abstinence, or daily injecting. Bottom line is that in people whose CD4s are pretty good, if someone's daily injecting, Providers are less like are likely to defer ART. So we do have often well placed reluctance, as you say, to prescribe medications. This was ART, but when someone's actively injecting or there's red flags, we definitely have concerns. But the treatment guidelines, as you're familiar with, recent or active IDU should not be seen as an absolute contraindication to Hep C therapy. Scaling up hep C treatment in persons who inject drugs is necessary to positively impact the hep C epidemic. So these are our guidelines, but guidelines and reality, often the twain do not easily meet. But treating hep C infected persons who inject drug, this is, again, this is um, not necessarily in HIV, but in studies, very high SVR rate. So it can be done. These are studies, however. Okay, I'm sure you're all aware. Oh, it's great when you're in a study. You got a million treatment adherence counselors calling them up. But when you're day-to-day practice, it may not be so easy. But uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that if you, in fact, go to different states in the country, to, in order to, uh, there are sobriety restrictions for hep C treatment. There really are. So like, for example, in Brown, abstain for 12 months, Louisiana. You're not going to get people getting treated, right? Texas, abstain for six months. So, so in, in our state, in Connecticut, we're a very loosey-goosey state and we treat everybody. Um, but uh, again, you know, very different um, uh, statewide uh, approaches to sobriety. Is there okay. any, um, based on those patterns, is there any differences in numbers of new infections based on how progressive or uh, restrictive this 
states are. I mean, because clearly people who are waiting 12 months for sobriety are going to have a lot more active injection. I mean, I, I think that I haven't seen a study come out, but one could surmise that could be a connection, but to prove that would be challenging. Okay, so real-world implementation challenges. So WHO says global viral hepatitis elimination by 2030, okay? And so, again, you know, we want to decrease incidence, decrease mortality, and sustainable development goals. End the epidemic of AIDS, TB, malaria, neglected tropical diseases, and combat hepatitis. So it's great to have these targets, but really we on the front lines is are dealing with the day-to-day -day challenges of implementing that. And if you look at the hepatitis C viral cascade, this is an older study by Yahia et al. from a VA population. And if you look, and the VA is really good at tracking their people, right? So the surveillance issues that I talked about earlier are not such an issue in the VA. But if they estimate, you know, this was a, I'm sorry, this was not the VA study. They, they did a modeling based on 3.5 million chronic hep C infected, and then they achieved SVR in 9%. This was a few years ago. I'm sorry, this is not the VA population. I'm thinking of a newer study. So this is the treatment cascade that we had modeled back in uh, 2014, so 9%. And if you look at U.S. estimates, so uh, I guess looking at a study done in Michigan, Michigan Health System, they had 30% of their people prescribed treatment. Okay, so clearly vanishing the lower treatment, uh, uh, and, and that's of course multifactorial. Is it that the providers won't do it? We don't have enough providers. Our patients are challenging. Access issues, etc. So, but we are not in good shape in the U.S. Is the bottom line. And so why? Why are there issues in treating everyone with hep C? Well, prescriber concerns, payer restrictions, as I mentioned, and patient factors, okay? Many of our patients who it's like, like the patient that I said, come on, this is like really, really easy to do. She finds every single excuse not to do it. It's interesting that you don't have stigma in there. That's a good point. Because stigma, I mean, you get the same diminishing return from HIV. That's a really good point. Although some people often say because the treatment is so much shorter that we can sort of work around that. But from a patient standpoint, often there is a stigma issue. My friends know I've got hepatitis C, so they know that I've used injection drugs, for example. Okay. Um, and just to say, these are historical exclusions for hep C treatment, and one of them is active drug use, alcohol, homelessness, adherence concerns, milder liver disease. So bottom line is that the guidelines say, really, you should treat everybody. Um, but saying that and doing that are two different things. And then in terms of what's our workforce, this is just a, a slide showing that in, this, in Australia, where their population is less um, and smaller, that other physicians, in this course of this year, other physicians besides gastroenterologists in blue, other specialists and ID people, they are coming into the fray, um, and appropriately so. If we're gonna do elimination, you're gonna need more than ID docs and hepatologists doing this. And finally, once we do cure people, I think we still have to deal with folks with advanced fibrosis, surveillance for hep C, uh, and then we are now starting to see reinfection. So this is not gonna all go away. 
Okay, so just to conclude, so the potency of our new DAAs with the shorter treatment duration, pangenotypic makes treatment easier. No brainer. Um, but, and HIV is not a contraindication to treatment. Providing hep C care and treatment across a range of settings probably can facilitate engagement in hep C care. We can do things within our HIV clinics, but we're not going to be enough to, we're like the tip of the iceberg. Multiple care providers can facilitate tier treatment, like hepatologists, primary care docs, advanced practice providers, ID specialists, so many different types of providers. And then treatment can be successful for persons who inject drugs, but multidisciplinary care models that address this, uh, including social and psychological needs, are, 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 um, are, are absolutely imperative. I can tell you that patient number two and patient number three, I've tried, and I can't get them into treatment. So they remain, and so there's many issues, you know, both medical and then psychosocial issues. So I'm going to stop there. I know I've gone a little over time, but I can still take some questions. Yeah. One of the real life things that we see sometimes is somebody will um, come in, get started, and then disappear for a little while and then come back and restart. Do you have guidelines on how many, how long someone? That's a really good question, and I think part of the issue is that we get our guidelines about length of treatment from studies. I was just <laughs> telling Bob on the way, so we're involved in this study. Uh, have, there's this product called the Proteus Digital Product. You can actually co-encapsulate a pill, and they have with sensors. Okay, and so. We have a few patients that we've recruited for hepatitis C meds, and it gets at the, so the question is, how much adherence do you really need? Because people, they, t they lie to me all the time, right? The guy said, you know, it's like, really? <laughs> um, and so, and there are studies that show that even in people who's, where adherence is maybe 50% by self-report, you still get SVR, right? So how, what is your forgiveness ratio? So with this product, what we're seeing, interestingly enough, is the same kind of people, so the folks that have had trouble treating, they do this product where they take the encapsulated pill, they wear a patch. I'm not advertising this company, by the way. It's just giving me a, shedding a light on how adherence is such a complicated issue. They wear a patch over their stomach, okay? And when they swallow this pill, the gastric acid um, activates a sensor and it sends a signal to the patch, which sends a signal to their app on an iPad or an iPhone, okay? And so we have telemetry on these people through our pharmacy to see, because, you know, they won't come into the clinic, but the pharmacist knows they're taking, oh, Mr. Jones, how come you miss? See, I see in your telemetry that you missed a dose. And goes, oh, yeah, yeah. So they're able to communicate with the pharmacist even when we don't know what's going on in the clinic. So my... My surmise is that we will be able to see that people are achieving SVR at much lesser dosing than the guidelines suggest. So I can't answer that question, but I do think that we are very, we are based on studies, which we have to be in terms of duration of treatment. But, and I certainly would not advocate to one of my patients, oh, well, you could probably get away with 50. No, no, that is like not cool. But I do think that you know, there is some forgiveness there. Um, so if someone stops for a little bit and they come in, what, and I've been in that situation, I will check their viral load and then I'll monitor them 
and kind of get a sense. You know, if they only stop for two or three days, I, first of all, it's hard to just get a whole new 12 weeks, right? So often I just pick up, depending on how long the lapse was, and then hope for the best, because there is forgiveness in the, in the dosing. That's a really great question. Other questions? All right, great. Thank you very much. You're welcome.